This week, we're going to take a little bit of a departure from our normal series. We've been going through the Apostles' Creed here on the podcast and uh, took a little bit of a break to talk about New Year's resolutions last week. Um, And this week, we'd like to talk about something that's a little bit more timely, a little bit more newsy than our, our typical topic. You know, we started this podcast last year in a response to the pandemic, and it was a way for us to keep in touch with the seminary community. And so it's always had that kind of casual style and casual tone to it while also focusing on the areas of our individual expertise and the expertise of the guests that we bring onto the show. And as a result of that, it's always been kind of a kind of a sort of higher minded, I guess, uh, you know, timeless evergreen type of podcast that's dealing with issues related to theology, biblical interpretation and ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world, as I say in the intro. Um, but sometimes things happen that we realize we really do need to stop and talk about as, you know, really a way of just being in this community. And I love these conversations and need these conversations every week. And it's a benefit to me to sort of process what's going on in the world around us. And we've done that over the time. You know, we, we talked about Ahmed Aubrey. Last uh, last spring, early summer, we talked about the unrest in American cities over the course of the summer, and you know this this is now a week where we're we're six days following the protests that turned into riots, and you know really finally the invasion of the the Capitol in Washington D.C. the Capitol building. And it's one of those events that we, as a faculty, realized is something that we needed to get together and talk about and process with each other. This isn't meant to be a, a political dialogue insofar as, of course, everything is political to a certain extent and in a broad understanding of politics, but really a response of how do, how do we as Christians, how do we as professors, how do we as pastors uh, reflect on the events of the last week and you know, how do we care for our families and our friends and our congregations in the midst of that? And so I'd like to start off with that question. I'd like to start off with that as a, as a, uh, a sort of a lead on this. You know, what is it that we are doing to help ourselves and to help those around us process what's going on in American politics uh, this here, the second week of the year 2021? So let me start with you, uh, Dr. Keene. Can you walk me through a little bit? What, is, what are some of the things that you've been doing with your family and congregations to kind of help people process this? Yeah, thanks. We've actually been in uh, the book of Daniel as a family for for a while now, actually moved very slowly. Um, and it's been such a blessing. It was a, it was a conscious decision, actually, you know, personally moving two years ago to a new location immediately going into lockdown from the pandemic, uh, making, you know, kids making new friends and trying to, to, to establish new relationships amidst the pandemic. And then now with all the political upheaval, my head went straight to Daniel because in so many ways, we feel like kind of in exile. And uh, as uh, happenstance would have it, uh, last night we Nebuchadnezzar was uh, turned into a beast 
And then after the fullness of time, he repents uh, of that. And he, uh, he reads this, and this is Daniel 4. He, he, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, by every indication seeming to be a, a pagan, proclaims to the Most High, Blessed be the Most High, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, but what have you done? And that idea has been, you know, a profound comfort. It's one that I have to talk myself into. It doesn't come intuitively to, to my head. The idea of the everlasting dominion of uh, now our Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns with the Father from heaven, who does justice upon the earth, and whose kingdom will have no end, of which kingdom I am a citizen. That I have to talk myself into that. But at the same time, once I talk myself into it, which I'm remind myself, preach, preach to myself uh, those great things, it's, it's a profound comfort to remember in the midst of, the, uh, of uh, chaos and exile and the wilderness that we have this everlasting kingdom and I am a brick in God's temple, which will never fall. How do you talk about that? I mean, you're talking about reading this with your family. Tell me, how do, how do you unpack that for, you know, I know you've got little girls at home yeah. uh, who are probably kind of somewhat aware of the things going on around them. I know we've got a wide age range at our household too. And right. I know my six-year-old has no idea what's going on beyond uh, the slime that she's making at the kitchen table, um, you know, on any given day. Uh, you know, how, how do you walk children through that kind of thing? Wow. I mean, that it's, it's hard work, right? And I have no, there are no silver bullets. There's no um, magic system for me, at least. Maybe one of you has a, a better system. You know, to be honest, the kids, they just, I, I read the passage. Our pattern has been, I read the passage, the paragraph for the night, and they just ask questions and we talk through it. And then, you know, uh, at the end, I try to kind of put some a cohesive little bow on it. Um, and, and then pray. Uh, but they are so curious and they have so many great questions that, I mean, if they kind of drive the agenda there and my pattern has been, my kind of rule to myself is you always answer a question honestly, age appropriately, but give them a true answer to a genuine question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sometimes that's more difficult than others, but to just to just be honest that hey, you know, I'm struggling with this too. They always ask, you know, why? Well, why, why COVID? If Jesus wants us to worship, and he and he and he covets our prayers, uh, especially corporate worship, why COVID when we can't join with others physically to to worship? And you know, I try to be honest and say, here's some reasons, but honestly, Dad does not know. Um, and, and to kind of give them a space to, to ask their genuine questions and give them a space to, to, to not know all the answers and, and that that's, that's okay. Their doubts, their fears, their anxieties, we bring them to God, but at the same time, we don't have all the, the solutions. That's really good. That's great, Kami. Uh, and I so appreciate your, um, you know, vulnerability and humility to, that you show to your children, you know, dad doesn't know, 
dad wishes he knew. I wish I knew. And, uh, and uh, sometimes I think it, it, it's helpful for our kids to see that we're kind of wrestling with, the, with this, all of this as, as they are. And I think also providentially to go to Daniel is, is perfect. You know, uh, I guess whenever I think of Daniel and I think of, of course, Nebuchadnezzar and how, you know, he, the Bible describes him as God's servant. I think it actually uses the term servant of the Lord in reference to Nebuchadnezzar and Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, I believe, Scott, I'm not sure if you can correct or confirm or correct that, but, you know, that's really an extraordinary title for the Bible to use for a, for a Gentile king, a, a pagan king that, you know, in what looked from Judah's expect, uh, uh, perspective that just everything has fallen apart. You know, we're, we're talking about national disaster at a, at a level that was obviously unprecedented for Israel and, and genuinely destructive and a loss of identity, um, real doubts about even God, you know, they're yeah. in exile for goodness sakes. Uh, and, and in the midst of what looks like everything's out of control and, and nothing is going right and, everything is going to heck, you know, the word of the Lord is reminding us, no, it isn't. The Lord is still sovereign. What you see Nebuchadnezzar doing and, and all of his malicious intent is, is serving a divine purpose. Uh, if anything, the Lord in the word is fantastic because it just confirms to us that, you know, that, that God is still is, is absolutely in control. That's, that's, that's sort of what I did with my family and, and sort of my circle of friends is just to reaffirm to them, you know, I, I get it. It's hard. It, it's crazy. Uh, but in the midst of all of this, uh, you know, we still can trust. We do trust. And, and the Lord is sovereignly in control. He is still ruling. And, uh, and we need to trust in that and believe in that and, and not take necessarily matters into our own hands. I mean, Cyrus, the same thing he, in, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45, you know, he is actually referred to as the Lord's Messiah. You know, that's crazy. And, and those are the terms that the Bible uses to reaffirm to, to, you know, to the people that, you know, what's going on is not political leaders serving their own means necessarily. They are serving a divine purpose. And, and I find a lot of comfort to that. And, and I try to assure people of that same thing. I think it's been like, I love everything that Peter and Tommy just shared, it's been a hard balance, like um, trying to speak gospel truth, because everything that Peter just said really resonates with me. Like uh, I've said, I don't know how people live literally without a sense of divine sovereignty. But I've also noticed that it's a kind of tricky environment because if and when I say that for different reasons, some do feel dismissed. You know, and that's where it gets tricky. So, um, and I, at least this is what I have adopted for now. Um, I think this, like Tommy sort of mentioned it where he said his uh, daughters have just have been asking a lot of questions. I think it's a good season just to try to listen well and to ask questions and to really uh, enter a season of empathy where um, you're just trying to understand people. Uh, you know, Brene Brown, she, she's um, a well-known figure right now. And, you know, whatever people think about her works, she is very helpful in terms of just really underscoring the need for more empathy. She has a quote somewhere that goes along these lines. She says that generally our relationships would be healthier. Our world would be a better place if we expended as much energy trying to understand people 
as we do trying to be understood, right? And so for me right now, as I like listen to my church members, um, what, what's very evident, or just when you listen to you, is that there's a lot of hurt. And generally, when you're in a context where there's a lot of hurt, no matter how true what you're saying is, they, they're not going to hear it unless they really do feel heard. And not just heard in the sense that you're able to repeat back what they said, but really understood. And so that's the posture I've been trying to adopt while still speaking the truth of the gospel. So, Paul, as a pastor, and you know, you to preach Sunday, how do you evaluate, you know, addressing issues like this in current events? I mean, you live right outside of Washington, D.C. A lot of the people in your congregation serve in the nation's capital. How do, how do you evaluate those decisions and how to address those kinds of things or not to uh, on a Sunday, in a Sunday sermon? Whenever it comes to church, uh, I always begin by talking, by taking a step back and first talking about culture, because um, to understand why we do what we do as a church, we have to try to understand the culture. And one of the things that we've been trying to unsquare at New City for like over a decade now is that we are really family in Jesus Christ, right? And the way that spills over into now specific incidents um, is that there is a lot of trust or particularly in, in the leadership, just as uh, you might say, children would trust their parents. And so they know that um, our leadership believes that the pulpit has a very specific purpose. Now, I'm not suggesting that our way is the only way, but in general, we do not let current events dictate what we uh, preach about because you know, a lot of what is deemed important depends on media. Like if you have access to what's going on in the world, everyday catastrophic things are taking place. And so you know, we've explained to our members that that's a slippery slope. Once we say, okay, this happened, so this week we have to talk about this instead of the Bible, then when does that stop? But at the same time, we do our best and we don't do it perfectly. And the, the more your church grows numerically, uh, no one's gonna feel like you, you have the right balance. And that's just part of ministry, that's fine. But we always make mention of maybe what was highlighted in media, either through the prayer or a kind of natural like application in the message. And you know, when you do that over the course of a long period, right? And that's why culture matters. I think people generally feel safe where there's this balance where they don't think that the leadership is oblivious to what's going on, but they understand that the, at least when it comes to Sunday preaching, uh, as has always been the case, Sunday preaching should not be dictated by current events. That's really good. Yeah. I mean, you've got to hit on both of those aspects that we find. I mean, find them throughout the Old Testament prophets, where there's this sense that you can't be moved back and forth by the events of the day, because ultimately we serve an eternal, everlasting God and advance his kingdom. And yet also we're not disembodied spirits, right? <laughs> you know, that we're, we're, we're living in this world. I, you know, I really like the way that you articulate that, particularly in terms of just being aware of, you know, how enormous, how huge this world is and how many things are going on from day to day around, around the globe. And, um, you know, you have to be careful about, about what you focus in on from one time or another, at one point or another. 
Yeah, I think about the book of Habakkuk, and I, we're, we're all citing uh, Old Testament here for the most part, which is good. Um, but, you know, I, I read Habakkuk 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, and there's this discussion going on where the prophet is saying, here I am in Judah, look at all the corruption around me. Lord, aren't you going to do something? No one's speaking up. And the Lord responds and says, oh, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to bring judgment against the corruption around me, to which the prophet says, wait, not them. <laughs> you know, they're terrible. Aren't you aware of who they are and what they do? And you're giving them victories and they're not even honoring you. They think it's their own gods who are giving them the victories. You know, Ezekiel makes the same point in, in, in Ezekiel 21. He's got this great passage where he talks about the king of Babylon standing at the crossroads and he's pulling out all of his omens to figure out which road he should go down and to invade the next city. And he, he's, he's consulting the liver, which is in our English Bibles. I think most of them still say wonderfully the teraphim because they just don't even want to try to translate it. You know, he's consulting these organs. He's throwing down, you know, arrows to see which way they, which way they point. He's doing all of these omens. And yet the Lord says, and I'm the one who's guiding him. <laughs> and guess what? I'm guiding him to Judah. And yet the king of Babylon has no idea of what's going on. And, 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 the prophets didn't act like the world around them wasn't happening. They were actually deeply engaged in it. They were speaking, you know, speaking truth to the uh, ruling authorities of their day. Interestingly, you know, Peter, you talked about Jeremiah and you, and you remember that in Jeremiah, as the Babylonian king comes in, he makes an envoy to Jeremiah saying, well, obviously you're on my side, right? Cause you've been saying all these public things about me. And Jeremiah says, no, I'm not on your side either. You know, and I, and I think there's something to that when we're looking at these issues to remember that um, we do serve a king and a God who is much greater than the events that we see around us. And maybe even at work in the events that we see around us. And yet also remembering, holding in that other hand, the fact that we are called to be embodied, to be loving our neighbors, to be bearing the fruit of God that hopefully, Lord willing, we are planted beside, you know, all uh, Psalm 1 and elsewhere um, and, and seeking, you know, justice and seeking righteousness and, you know, seeking peace and tranquility while also holding kind of in both hands this reality of our eternal call and our earthly dwelling. And, and, and Jesus, you know, of course, I, I always, I always feel odd saying, well, Jesus says it well when, you know, of course Jesus says it well, he's the son of God. But when he says, we are in the world, but we're not of the world, you know, and as we're watching these events happen, it both calls us to a, a farther horizon and at the same time calls us to the kind of a radical engagement. And, um, you know, it, it, it's good at times like this uh, for us as Christians to remember that and, and, I think about pastors who are, who are having to make these kinds of decisions on how to engage with their congregations during this time in a way where you're not forgetting the farther horizon and you're at the same time not forgetting you know, present responsibility. It's a, it's a really challenging tension, right? And thinking about Revelation uh, a lot in, in, in these times and, and how on the one hand, our kingdom is not of this world, right? we are pursuing a heavenly kingdom. And so we're to be heavenly minded. But so often in our day and age, in our kind of hyper-spiritualized culture, we can think that being heavenly minded means 
not thinking about the things on earth. But then in Revelation, what we find is that the kingdom to which we are going is the kingdom of the heavens and the earth, right? That, that it's not some new dimension to which we will be transported, but rather the new Jerusalem will descend upon the earth such that the, the whole world that God has made, the cosmos will be itself redeemed. It will be, this will be the kingdom of heaven, um, the kingdom of God, I should say. So it's a, it's a challenging to, how do I be heavenly minded while at the same time maintaining the, the significance of the deeds done in the body and the events of this world and my witness, which is a, a public witness, which is a witness to my neighbors, some of whom I'm going to disagree with and some of whom I'm going to agree with. You know, how, do I main, how do I maintain all of that balance? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. That, I, have no, uh, I have no follow-up. No, I was, no, well, let me say real, real quick. I mean, you know, I think about J.I. Packer's book. This, this, this formula always was transformative for me. Let me say, in his book, Sovereignty in was Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, where he says we don't evangelize in spite of sovereignty. But he basically says we evangelize. Evangelism is effective because of sovereignty. Yeah, that's a great. <laughs> you know, and I, and I think about the heavenly minded and earthly good kind of language. The reason why we can be bold and confident in speaking forth and acting forth in this world is because we are heavenly minded, right? I mean, and that's the thing I keep having to go kind of click back to. It's not either or, it's the far kingdom, the far horizon empowers the present, right? In a sense, that's the nature of the already not yet that we're dwelling in and that we're already breathing the fresh air of the new heavens and new earth, which invigorates us for the battle in front of us. Right. It's not a different place to which we are going, but yeah. a perfect, more fully realized God's presence, more fully realized in this cosmos that we're yeah. headed. Yeah. More of a yeah. future orientation, cosmic kingdom or godly orientation than, than thinking that all the concerns, all of the history of this world will just be wiped clean and we'll start over. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what comes to mind to me is the neo-Calvinist impulse, which says that eschatology grounds present-day ethics in other words what we do today should be shaped by what we anticipate to be what's next in the new heavens and new earth and i think that's incredibly useful and you know we oftentimes talk about the spirituality of the church in a a good way to to think about the many ways in which we should be heavenly minded the many ways in which the mission of the church transcends the political and present circumstances that we find ourselves in Yet at the same time, we could oftentimes use that kind of language to justify being okay with the status quo, justify being silent about present day realities that actually are very much relevant and impactful to our congregants and also uh, to our friends, our families, our, our neighbors around us. And we shouldn't actually, because the spirituality of the church implies a very radical public theology, a very radical and, and useful attitude to keep in mind as we consider about these present day challenges, because if we understand that we are pilgrims on the way, we actually have a grounding for a public attitude that is anti-alarmist, that is, as Kuiper would say, anti-revolutionary, as his own party was called the anti-revolutionary party, which would then, because of the redemptive historical, again, backdrop that we, we Christians believe in, we won't actually resort to 
violent protest in order to to go about something like this. And we should be able to be patient to listen to our neighbor as we live in a pluralist society. And I think we, we missed that, that actually by talking about the spirituality, the mission of the church and the new heavens and new earth and heavenly mindedness, it actually helps us as, as Tommy and Scott, you've been saying, helps us proclaim and live out truth for the earthly good today. Mm. That was really good. And I'm not pausing because it wasn't <laughs> great. You got me thinking I had, I had a follow up to you and then you said something really interesting at the end. So I started thinking about that. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, this was probably worth pointing out. I'm glad, I'm glad you said that Scott, but it's, it's yeah. worth pointing out that, that Kuiper's party, you know, people think about Kuiper, maybe this is just a side note as kind of a triumphalist figure. And in some ways he, he was, I mean, rhetorically, he was very unhelpful in many ways, but, I mean, his party was called the anti-revolutionary party. You know, mm. that's that's the impulse of the neo-Calvinists. They actually try to argue that reformation rather than revolution is the way to go, not just theologically, but also politically and publicly. And the impulse, the impulse of their party was to actually ensure that the state, the state's responsibility was to allow and permit and empower all of the worldviews to flourish according to their own wishes, because this is a pluralist society. And I actually think if you draw from that rich pluralist, you know, Dutch reform tradition, we can actually say that, hey, this, this is a great, again, ethic for, for us to stop, pause and listen to our neighbor, because we're going to be living side by side with people who disagree with us all the time. And again, the solution is not going to be revolution. The solution is not going to be a, a taking over of power and to silence uh, the people who disagree with us, but rather actually, how do we learn to coexist? So Kuiper's argument was always that Calvinism is a source for social harmony and peace, it is actually a source for our constitutional stronghold, right? That's actually, again, I think something that, that people forget when they quote Kuiper's every square inch quote, because they think, wow, that sounds like an incredibly theocratic, triumphalist kind of notion, but it's really quite the opposite of that common grace and pluralism here uh, being in view. Mm. That's really important too, because you you can see how a formula like that one, you know, that every square inch Christ is claiming mine could lead to some kind of triumphalism or Christian nationalism or something along those lines. And, you know, reading it in context with the whole of Kuyperian thought is really significant. I mean, I think the same way, you know, the same thing is true with the language of the spirituality of the church that you mentioned, Gray. You know, the idea that if, if you just pull that phrase out, you know, and then you apply whatever you want those words to mean to it, you know, then then it can go in a lot of different directions. And I think a lot of people, when they hear the language of like the spirituality of the church, they think, oh, this is this is talking about sort of the disembodiedness or some kind of Gnostic idea of the spirit versus the carnal and the physical and of course, that's that's not what's going on. You know, this is more akin to how Paul uses the language of spirit versus flesh. You know, the idea of the spirit being the redeemed, the the new Christ living within the person versus the sin of the flesh, not 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 the body or the physical or the meat of the person or something like that. You know, that that the doctrine of the spirituality of the church is not to say that the church is not present and active in this physical universe. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I think that gets lost kind of in these dialogues, too. I'm, I'm hesitant sometimes to use the phrase because I know how people hear it, you know, in light of what the doctrine actually teaches. 
Yeah, there's got to be a better phrase out there. Something like redemptive, historically minded, public theology or something. Mm, but I'm sure the phrase uh, <laughs> involves a lot of hyphens. Whatever the phrase is, it needs hyphens. You know, it's 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 definitely inspired by Meredith Klein there. But if you, if you think about, you know, a passage like Second Peter 3, and this is the time of God's patience, not wishing for any to perish, and think about God's patience with the various cities that Abraham uh, was interacting with in the Old Testament, right? I mean, God was very patient with sinners uh, because our sins has not yet come up to him and a lot of those texts say right and and this is if this is the era of god's common grace i think that stops us from going the revolutionary route and helps us again be be the patient ones realizing that we're going to be here because we all are in an order of god's common grace and so how do we coexist with one another that's an incredible question to ask talking about just these different kinds of misunderstandings, misrepresentation, misinformation that can happen in, especially in charged dialogue, right? These kinds of, well, I'm following Kuiper, I'm following, you know, uh, the spirituality of the church. You know, what comes to mind too is just scripture is often used that way. Um, I'm already seeing chatter about Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. And um, wasn't that, you know, doesn't that justify uh, some sort of kind of revolutionary uh, activity. And what we have to remember, of course, in any of these is that you just can't reduce people, you can't reduce viewpoints to sound bites, to hot takes. And scripture is no different. We have a very complex, we can't talk about this now, we don't have time to talk about this now, but we have a very complex view that is presented to us of scripture about the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And those that requires a nuanced, careful discussion that is going to be not only biblical and theological, but situationally specific and applied. And th- those are the kinds of things that we do in seminary. Those are the kinds of things, kinds of conversations we have at RTS. But you, but you can't reduce that to you know a, a Twitter post or a Facebook post. It it, it requires understanding the breadth of scripture on the one hand the kingdoms of god are not the kingdom the kingdoms of, of men are not the kingdom of god and the kingdom of god is you know, holy other is his sovereign rule over all of creation on the other hand the kingdoms of this world will bring their glories into the kingdom of heaven i have no idea what that means but it's it's an amazing nuanced carefully formulated presentation in scripture that that allows for a lot of room for dialogue, discussion, and specific application to specific circumstances that's not reducible to a singular principle. That idea of the, you know, the kingdoms of this world bringing its glories into the kingdom of God. And again, we don't know how that works, but I can hear right away someone saying, well, no, don't you know, it's all going to be melted down. You know, the, the fire that is consuming fire, and everything will be lost, you know, and yet, of course, if you read that in light of the Old Testament, you know, that that that, that fire is a refining fire, right? It's the fire of Israel going through exile. Uh, that's why Paul can say things like he says in Philippians that I am laboring now knowing that I don't labor in vain, right? You know, this idea that what is good and glorifying to God now now, you got to be careful because I don't know what this is going to look like. Who, know, who knows what this could be like? No eye has seen, right? No ear has heard. 
and yet the glories of today are not some you know the the, the honest god glorifying events and things of the day are not merely of this world right they're for the world to come and i think the recent events have reminded us why why it is so important that rts washington has the institute of theology of public life i wish jennifer patterson was here to talk more about this and her own uh, vision for how theology should impact how we engage with public life but everything you just said especially tommy you know this is not reducible to a sunbite this requires many years of, of keen reflection and that's what we're trying to do here at seminary keen reflection was that was that a pun i did not realize it but you know what i will take it as a pun i will i'll look back at it and i think you know that makes sense it should be a pun thanks i'll take it as a compliment yeah Tommy yeah. Keen makes keen observations. <laughs> and with wow. that mutual and with that mutual admiration society, we <laughs> we should land this plane. Call now and, and you can take your first class for free. No, I'm, uh, th thanks, Gray, for, for plugging Institute of Theology and Public Life. And that really is kind of what what the work of the Institute is trying to do, trying to think through in you know, a more deeply theologically formed way, exactly what is the call of politics? Because I think we live in a hyper-political day where there's, a, there, there's an unhealthy view of exactly what politics can accomplish and also an unhealthy view about the rest of our life and how it relates to partisan politics, right? So sitting down and having a, a kind of a, a deeper theological discussion of what it is that uh, politics can achieve and where policy solutions can take us. And at the same time, having a more full-orbed you know, view of the Christian life is really important and sorely needed these days. And so I'd encourage anybody who's listening, if, you, if, you, if you're interested in more, we have a class coming up uh, this spring uh, on the terms of cultural engagement, where we're kind of working through um, the language that's used in modern political discourse in the United States, but not just here in the United States, also beyond. Brothers, it's always a joy to talk with you and to discuss these issues and to work through them uh, on a weekly basis. And I just appreciate your counsel and I appreciate the community here at RTS um, where I get to interact with so many students and friends and, and supporters of the seminary and work through these issues in a way that is uh, glorifying to God and also deeply challenging to me. And so I appreciate this conversation. Uh, thanks for having it. And I look forward to being again together next week. Take care. Okay. I'm glad this is all getting in. This is good. This is good. This is really good stuff. No one will ex will mistaken Paul and me ever again, Paul, now. And the reason why is you have a whole lot more hair than I do. I was about no, to... No, no, I'm saying a, a decade from now. A decade from now. A decade from now. Yeah, yeah. Paul, you're going to just you're, go... You're, you're aging well. Yeah, I'm going to get a ponytail. That'll look but good. Do it like this. Not back.
about what about a man bun? Ponytail, not a man bun. Is that what it is? It's called a man bun. I'm gonna think, do a man bun. I think it. I think the man bun would be a good look for you. I'm gonna do it like this, and then grow a beard like this, so that it looks like a perfect. I, I uh, think Scott, we've lost control of this conversation. <laughs> Peter, Peter, by the by the way, a man bun is not an actual bun. It's actually about hair. It's not buns that men eat. It's 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 the way the hair anyway. Uh -oh.